Today we're talking with Massimo Piliucci, the K.D. Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. Before becoming a full-time philosopher, Massimo worked as an evolutionary biologist, and then, as now, he's a strong voice for updating the foundations of evolutionary biology, but we'll hear why later. When we asked Massimo for his five big ideas in evolutionary biology, he gave us this group. Natural selection, phenotypic plasticity, epigenetic inheritance, evolvability, and niche construction. That's a big and exciting set of ideas, and there was simply no way we'd cover all of them in our chat, but we'll get to them in future episodes. In this episode, we talk with him about phenotypic plasticity and niche construction. Plasticity describes how different genotypes produce different traits depending on the environment. Although this might not sound controversial, plasticity has led to some major rethinking about how evolution works and has led some biologists to claim that genes are followers in evolution, not the leaders they're usually thought to be. Niche construction describes how organisms modify their local environments. Think beaver dams. The idea of niche construction has reverberated through the field of evolution and has recently motivated biologists to ask whether niche construction by humans and other species can change the course of their own evolution. This podcast is a full-length recording of our conversation with Massimo, but if you want to hear a shorter version, you can get it on our website, bigbiology.org, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Now, let's dive in. Welcome to Big Biology. We contacted you a couple of weeks ago, I guess, and, and asked you to, to give us your, your big five ideas in evolution, and I, I, we did constrain you to five. You might have wanted to give us 20, but um, five, five <laughs> was all we asked, and today we probably won't even be able to get into those five. But um, uh, so, so let, me, let me set the table there before we get started and jump into any details. Your five, and correct me if I've got them wrong, were natural selection, phenotypic plasticity, epigenetic inheritance, evolvability, and niche construction. Yep. Um, so I think before, we, we've chosen to talk about, just for sake of time, we've chosen to talk about phenotypic plasticity, since it's so close to home, um, and niche construction. But before we talk about either one of those, I'd I just like to hear why you picked those as, as big ideas, and I, I think generally what constitutes a big idea in biology specifically. Well, uh, yeah, that's a good question. So those choices, of course, reflect, reflect my own judgment. If you ask um, one of my former colleagues, for instance, at Stony Brook, uh, Doug Futuima, uh, who is the author of still today the most um, uh, widely used graduate-level text in biology, in evolutionary biology, he would probably not give you at least three of those. Hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, it would include, certainly would include natural selection, but I don't think he would think about plasticity, evolvability, niche construction or genetic inheritance. In fact, it will basically give you just one of them. <laughs> um, and, and there is a reason for that. So um, Doug, I'm not picking on him. I mean, he's, he's a great guy and a great colleague, but uh, he's just a, a very good example of what I'm about to say. So there is, there is a little bit of a split right now in evolutionary biology. There is a number of colleagues who are uh, perfectly, perfectly happy with what it's called the modern synthesis. The modern synthesis is basically the standard model, uh, you know, the equivalent in biology of the standard model in physics. Uh, it was uh, a theory or a framework. It's not really a theory. It's a framework for thinking about evolution that was put together uh, between the 1920s and the 1940s uh, to solve very specific problems or, uh, uh, concerning, you know, that, that, that were affecting the original Darwinism, for instance, reconciling the original Darwin, Darwinian ideas with the discovery of Mendel's laws and you know, basically the rise of genetics. 
Um, that has been the model that has been taught. It's still taught in most, most graduate level courses today. But over decades, really, uh, people started making sort of grumbling noises about the fact that the modern synthesis wasn't wrong as much as it was a little too limited. It had, for instance, left entirely out certain fields of research, like, like developmental biology. Uh, others, it had taken on in a kind of a perfunctory way, but not really, like ecology, for instance. Mm. Um, and then there is a bunch of other stuff that has come out and has become, you know, become prominent in evolutionary studies over the last two or three decades, including the four things that I mentioned that right. Doug wouldn't, um, that, you know, and a certain number of people felt is, is beginning, beginning to feel that, like, okay, well, all this stuff really doesn't fit into the modern synthesis. We need some kind of expansion of the mm. framework. And this is what it's uh, often referred to as the extended synthesis or the extended evolutionary synthesis, EES. So what I'm giving, so, so my five choices are a reflection of the fact that I'm a supporter or, or one of the people that is pushing for uh, the extended synthesis, um, which is still, I think, uh, uh, to be fair, a minoritarian view within the field, but I think it's it's one that is actually getting strength and support. It's, you know, a lot of colleagues are now, especially young colleagues, which is a good sign. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Young colleagues, graduate students and postdocs are actually embracing uh, the new framework um, and they are doing a lot of research on those four areas that I that I was uh, referring to other than natural selection, which is still the fundamental, probably mm -hmm. arguably the most fundamental idea in evolutionary biology anyway. It's still, it's still there. Nothing, from that point of view, nothing has changed. This is not a paradigm shift uh, this is not a, a new theory or a rejection of darwinism is is, uh, is is a significant expansion of what we had before okay i wanted to jump in here Massimo, and ask about um just just big ideas and biologists in general so do you think biologists are, are good at at generating and testing big ideas in relation to scientists in other fields i mean you know it feels like there's maybe a, a sort of more central core set of big things that are under test in, in physics. Um, there's obviously a lot of big ideas in biology, but, you know, biologists in general, are we good at, at formulating these big ideas? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I actually think they're better than physicists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and certainly better than anybody else. Uh, and, of course, I say that because I'm an evolutionary biologist. Of course. Uh, no, so, so I think it, this is actually a good question, right? So testing the big ideas. How do you test big ideas, right? Um, uh, because you can test, usually empirical tests are aimed, especially in the so-called special sciences, and basically everything other than fundamental physics is, is a special science. So hmm. biology, you know, evolutionary biology, ecology, molecular biology, genetic, uh, you know, yes, genetics, uh, but also outside of biology, ge uh, geology, uh, chemistry, and all that, all those are considered special sciences by the uh, by philosophers of science. Um, the only one that doesn't fall into that category is fundamental physics. Now, uh, in the special sciences, typically you don't test big hypotheses. Big hypotheses pro provide a framework, so you don't. You know, it doesn't make much sense, for instance, to say, "Well, let's test natural selection." Mm. I don't even know what that means. Natural <laughs> selection is a um, phenomenon that we a process that we think occurs in nature. Uh, we can document it because we can measure it uh, indirectly. We, you know, there are certain techniques that measure, but but testing natural selection is like weird. It's like saying, uh, "Well, should, we should test gravity." Well. Mm -hmm. Just go outside and throw throw, <laughs> throw something in the air, and you, know, voila. you know. Now, what you want to test, of course, are your ideas about gravity or about natural selection, how they work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? And in that sense, the reason I said a little bit provocatively that evolutionary biologists are actually, or biologists in general, 
actually better, is because the physicists, especially recently, have run into trouble in terms of the limits of what they can test. Right. So there's a, a huge debate going on in fundamental physics about supporters and, and um, critics of string theory. And the critics are now becoming more and more vociferous. And they're saying, hey, guys, you've been around with this theory for 35 years and you haven't provided us, uh, you know, empiricists, a single test of that of those ideas. You keep telling us that that's the next big thing in physics. But in fact, we're sort of running out of opportunities to test it. Uh, now you're beginning to tell us that uh, in order to test it, it, it the, the, the experimental apparatus would have to would require uh, levels of energy that are you know clearly way outside of anything that yeah. is foreseeable uh, for for human technology. So it's like ah, what that, now what? <laughs> so so the <laughs> ideas have sort of outstripped the ability of of the tools to provide the tests. Correct. Now that's not necessarily the fault of the string theorists, right? They would say, well, hey, this is just the way it that's is. What, we need. So what do you want mm-hmm. from me, right? Um, <laughs> But it is a serious uh, problem. I mean, so in fact, if you notice, um, there have been discussions the last two or three years in even major uh, journals like Nature Magazine published a, a, a call by a couple of physicists to sort of to take back the fields from, from string theory and so on and so forth. So it looks like at the moment, at least, uh, fundamental physics is actually running into trouble. Well, on the other hand, biology, with very few exceptions, uh, biologists have been able to test all of the ba- major big ideas uh, that, that they have come up with, even outside of, of evolutionary biology. So one of the big ideas in biology outside of evolution, uh, strictly speaking, is, of course, the, the double helix structure of DNA. Well, that one was tested almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, so it seems like, like biologists have actually been fairly successful. One of the exceptions, probably the only exception I can think of at the moment, is the origin of life. Uh, mm-hmm. Ideas about the origin of life are really difficult to test for the simple reason that we don't really have a lot of information about uh, what the conditions that led to the origin of life on Earth, you know, three and a half billion years ago were. But outside of that, um, lots of big ideas in both molecular biology, genetics, and evolutionary biology and ecology are being tested all the time, and, and mm-hmm. so they're fairly successful fields. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. So are you then saying that? Biologists are, have been more creative, and and or more creative, or just better able to test the hypotheses. The problem's more tractable. No. And and the reason that I asked that is, you know, one one of your favorite topics is the genotype phenotype map, and that sort of right. continues to be one of the pretty difficult nuts to crack. So yeah, no, yeah, I don't think I don't think that biologists are uh, any more any smarter or, or or better at doing science than anybody else. Just like on the other hand, I would immediately add. Physicists are not, but despite what many physicists themselves think, they're not smarter than anybody else. It's, it's a question of, <laughs> you know, it's a question of what the problems are and what the technology is. So, for instance, for a long time, uh, evolution, uh, sorry, developmental biologists really couldn't do much other than descriptive work. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, they were doing wonderful work. I mean, they were doing, you know, in the early part of the 20th century into into the 80s, really. Uh, they're doing wonderful descriptive work, uh, dissecting you know embryos at different stages of development and so on and so forth. But there was nothing they could do about uncovering the molecular mechanisms underlying developmental processes because the technology was not there. Mm-hmm. And now this has changed and things have exploded in the 1980s, 90s, and, and, and currently there is an entire field called Evo Devo uh, where people are making tremendous strides. So, uh, so no, I don't think it's a question of, of people being smart or not. It's a question of what is the relationship between the theory and the empirical evidence and empirical practice? And is the empirical practice gotten to the point in terms of technology 
uh, uh, that allows the you know significant tests tests of the hypothesis. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes that's not the case. And that kind of pretty much goes across fields. Uh, okay. you know, sometimes people just have to wait until and if the technology develops. Right. Because you know, yeah. I'm not one of those people that uh, that thinks that any scientific question will necessarily have an answer one of these days. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. it's, there's no reason to think that that's the case. Uh, the mm -hmm. human mind is limited and human technology is limited. So maybe, maybe not. We'll, we'll see. Okay. So at the mention of, of Evo Devo, that probably is a good time to, to tackle the, the first one, phenotypic plasticity. And um, I guess before we go too far, it'd be useful if you could define it, maybe give a few examples too. Sure. So phenotypic plasticity is something that has actually been known from the beginning of the 20th century, right? Shortly after the discovery, the rediscovery of Mendel's work, and therefore the beginning of genetic and modern genetics, uh, people started talking about phenotypic plasticity. Uh, but it had been considered a um, sort of background issue. It's in fact kind of a noise to get rid of, rather than a major player. Uh, in evolutionary theory until fairly recently. So let's first define it. So plasticity is the ability of a genotype to produce different phenotypes in response to different environments. Now, as I said uh, a minute ago, early, uh, you know, this, this phenomenon was actually discovered in 1909, I believe, uh, by uh, uh, Johansson, who was actually the guy that coined the terms phenotypes and genotype to begin with. And he was working with Daphnia. These, these are uh, you know, unicellular organisms that that live in ponds, and he discovered that if the Daphnia lives in ponds without um, a predator, without a significant predator presence, then they develop into sort of the, the, um, in a, in a, the, their head, so to speak, because it's as I said, it's it's a simple it's a simple microorganism. But this, let's say the head is kind of spherical without without any any pointed parts. But if there are predators, it becomes pointed. And right, and and so the idea is that uh, that's adaptive because it's an adaptive type of plasticity because it protects to some extent the Daphnia from the predators. Okay. Now, phenomena like that have been discovered for the last century all over the place. They're they're very common. They're very they're very uh, so cases of adaptive plasticity are very common. Now, however, until the I would say at least the 1970s included in probably early 80s. Most, most evolutionary biologists will look at plasticity and say, yeah, 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 we know that there is that sort of thing. But it's kind of noise. It's, it's like it's something that happens uh, that uh, it's, we can treat in the background. Uh, it's an exception more than a rule. It doesn't have much of a significance and so on and so forth. Uh, and there is reasons for that. It's not because they were lazy, but because the dominant uh, mathematical theory in uh, evolutionary biology, which is population genetic theory, simply cannot handle plasticity. There is no way to put it into the equations. Okay, it would require a major rethinking of sort of the mathematics uh, underlying, you know, the, the, our our model models of evolutionary theory. Then, beginning in the 80s, and then even more so in the 90s, and, and up until now, a number of people, including myself. Uh, that was what I did my my PhD thesis at University of Connecticut on plasticity uh, of uh, a, a species of weeds known as Arabidopsis taliena, uh, which is easy to work with because it's often it grows very fast um, and it's very small. It's kind of often uh, referred to as the fruit fly of, of botany. <laughs> it's, it's very convenient to use for genetic studies, and uh, so a lot, number of people, including myself and my advisor at the University of Connecticut, Carl Schlichting started making lots of noise about, look, we, you can't ignore this thing because it's, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. 
have every, almost every trait we look at in almost every natural population, no matter what uh, species you're looking at, there is plasticity. So what you mean, it's not, it's noise. It's not noise. It's a major thing. Uh, and then at some point uh, in the late 80s, I think it was 89, Mary Jane Weiss-Tabbert, who is a major uh, player in sort of modern evolutionary biology, uh, put out a huge review paper, uh, essentially not only pointing, uh, you know, demonstrating that plasticity is all over the place, is ubiquitous, etc., but also advancing a fairly controversial idea, which then she elaborated in a major book that she published a few years later, um, arguing that sometimes evolutionary change does not start with a genetic change, which has been the assumption ever since the rediscovery of Mendel, uh, but starts with a plastic uh, shift, with, with, a, with a change in environment that causes a change in phenotype, even though the, the genotype remains the same. And then the genes, basically, uh, genetic variation ensues later, and it's selected in order to stabilize this phenotype. So the way this would work is like, I can give you a, uh, an example that one of my students and I have worked on um, for some time. So uh, there are certain plants that are uh, semi-aquatic, so they live in environments where uh, the level of the, of the, uh, the water fluctuates uh, during, during uh, either the day or the seasons, depending on the situation. And these plants typically have developed two different kinds of leaves, one underwater and another one above water. These leaves are anatomically different. They look different. They're physiologically different as well. So it's a case of intra-individual plasticity, basically, because the environment is, is uh, uh, you know, the, the individual is actually experiencing two different environments. Um, and so below water does one thing, above water does another thing. It's the same genotype, obviously, because it's the same organism, right? Now, lots of people, not just my student and I, but other people as well, have discovered that what happens uh, is that if, for whatever reason, the environment permanently shifts one way or the other, so uh, the, 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 the lake or whatever it is uh, becomes, you know, the level of the water goes down permanently so that now the environment is that these, these plants experience is only terrestrial or vice versa, the level of water goes up and the plants essentially become completely aquatic. Then there is a shift in phenotype. Obviously, the, the plant is already, it's basically pre-adapted to either one of these two environments because it's already capable of living in those, in those environments, except that in, instead of doing it uh, temporarily, it does it permanently. Now, the plants that are capable of doing this shift, the, the plastic shift, will be able to survive a change in the environment and then what happens over a period of time, of course, so initially there is no genetic change, but over a period of time, new mutations will come into the, into the population. Some of these mutations will be able to fix the new phenotype to make it more stable, to make it less sensitive to environmental changes, because now it's no longer necessary to actually have the plasticity. And then you have the sort of a fixation of these new phenotypes by genetic means, by natural selection. Uh, and, and genetics. So basically what West Deborah was saying, uh, has been saying is like, look, sometimes what happens is that the first step in evolution is not the appearance of a mutation, but rather an environmental change. And those members of the population that are pre-adapted, at least in part, even at a suboptimal level, to the new environment, shift to the new environment by means of plasticity, by an entirely phenotypic change, uh, and then over th that gives time to the population to survive, basically, instead of being eliminated immediately. It hangs around for a little bit. And the longer it hangs around, the longer, the, the more likely it is that there will be, in fact, beneficial mutations that are going to be selected and further fine-tuned and stabilized uh, things. So this, this phenomenon is called 
um, genetic, uh, you know, phenotypic accommodation. Okay, and it is a result of the fact that the plant is plastic to begin with. Um, it, so, so the issue here now is if this is true, and, and we do have a number of cases where the, this is definitely true. The question is how frequent, frequently does that happen? But even if it's only occasional, uh, the thing is, this is a major departure from standard evolutionary theory, because you have an evolutionary change that does not that is not initiated by way of a mutation. Um, does that is that amount does that amount to a rejection of Darwinism and all that sort of stuff? No, <laughs> it just means that guess what? There is one more mechanism by which. Uh, you know, living species can adapt to novel environments. <laughs> awesome. I want to ask you a, a sort of theoretical extension of one of the things you were just talking about. But before we do that, I think I think it would help our listeners if we if we go back and talk about phenotypic plasticity in humans and maybe just sure. give some examples of, you know, what are the important kinds of phenotypic plasticity? Um, you know, what's the difference between developmental plasticity and sort of short-term reversible changes? You know, if I go out and run around the building, my heart rate's going to go up. Uh, right. It's the same genotype. Right. My phenotype has changed. So right. is that is that plasticity? That is plasticity, but it's the kind of plasticity that, as you say, it's not really directly relevant. I mean, it is relevant because you do survive better precisely because your, your heart rate <laughs> adjusts, right, mm -hmm. uh, depending on circumstances. But it is reversible. Um, the Most of the studies have been done on developmental plasticity, not reversible plasticity. Uh, so you know, the, often the difference is, is drawn as developmental versus physiological plasticity. So heart rate is an example of physiological plasticity. Right? But your height, for instance, is an example of developmental plasticity. Mm -hmm. uh, now, we know in human beings that the height is the result in part of genes and in part of the environment. You know, we, we know that people with better diet, on average, become taller um, and you know, other things being equal. We also know that there are mutations that affect human height. So we do know that both of them uh, uh, are important. The problem with human beings in particular is that it's hard to do to actually trace the reaction norms. That is, that is, do those diagrams that I was referring to earlier, because that would require controlled experiments in which you breed people on purpose, uh, large numbers of them. Then you wait 30 years until they grow up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, you put them in a different environment, controlled environments, and that you, you can imagine that this is not only logistically but also ethically not possible. Mm. Just not, not suspect possible. on many fronts. Yes. So, so one of the problems. So what that means is that really we don't know what the shape of human reaction norms is. We have very good indirect evidence that environmental effects are, are relevant for certain human traits. We have also very good indirect evidence that genetic uh, effects are important for certain human traits. We don't know how the two interact together because the only way that I know of in order to figure out a reaction is to do the controlled experiment that I just mentioned, which is impossible in human beings. So that is what makes me very skeptical of anyone who claims to know anything about human reaction norms. So uh, and, you know, there, and there are two camps, right? There, there's the geneticists who say, oh, no, no, it's mostly uh, genetics. What do you mean, mostly? How do, you do, <laughs> how do you measure that, right? And then there's the other camp, usually in the social sciences, uh, people say, no, 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 genetics has nothing to do with things like human intelligence or behavioral traits or things like that. How do you know that? How did you measure that also? It's just, it's really bizarre that people make these really confident statements uh, about either the heritability or the environmental effects on human traits, especially human complex human behavioral traits, 
They don't know. Again, I'm going to use Lewontin. He came up with this wonderful analogy a number of years ago to explain what the problem is with gene environment interactions. So he said, look, imagine you're building a house. And instead of in the United States where most houses are built of wood, which is why they don't last, uh, you, you, you build it, you know, the old fashioned way, the European way with bricks and lime. Okay. So you say, okay. So you start putting the first layer of bricks and then lime on it and then bricks and lime and bricks and lime. Now, once you get the final house, you could, if you want it, ask the very quantitative question, well, what is the weight of the house in bricks and what's the weight of the house in lime? And there is an answer to that question. And I'm sure it would be something like, you know, 98% bricks and 2% lime. That tells you precisely nothing about how to build a house because it isn't about, you know, it's, you're not going to come up with 98 bricks and then two little pieces of bits, pieces of, of lime. And then you say, oh, I got the house. No, you get the house by the specific patterning of the bricks and the lime. Right. And so the idea there is that even if you could show that, let's say, 90 percent of, of variation in phenotypes in, in a particular human trait is the result of genetic influences. That still doesn't mean the way in which is usually interpreted. Oh, so genes do all the work and the environment is not important. You take out that 10% in that specific pattern and you get nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Because genes by themselves don't do crap. So <laughs> um, it's, it's, really, it's really bizarre how, how people still today, after decades and decades and decades of studies of phenotypic plasticity, Gene environment interactions, they still come up with very, very simplistic things like, oh, it's 80% genetics. No, it's not. So, shall we switch gears and, and maybe uh, spend some time on niche construction, another uh, completely sure. accepted, uh, very well understood, not, not complicated at all concept? I'll start by saying one of your big five ideas is uh, about niche construction. So, why, why do you think that's an important player in this uh, extended evolutionary synthesis? Broadly speaking, the uh, relevant environmental factors that an organism uses, uh, or resources, I, I should say, environmental resources that an organism uses in order to live, okay, to, to, to thrive. Now, it, uh, early on, ecologists thought that there could be such a thing as an empty niche. An empty niche would be a set of environmental um, uh, resources that are basically waiting for an organism to discover them and to you know, get, get there. Um, that concept is no longer doesn't have a lot of purchase in modern ecological theory um, because ecologists have come to agree that the that niche, niches are constructive, meaning that it's a it's a dialectical relationship between the organism and the environment. The organism develops certain ways of, of life in part because it lives in a certain environment, but in doing so, it alters that environment. To suit its own its own its own uh, needs, and so it's a it's a continuous positive feedback uh, between environment and, and organisms. So that the idea that a niche is out there just waiting to be filled um, is is uh, is being discarded at this point. I mean, there are still there's still a sense in which one can think of some major transition transition in evolutionary time as a discovery of new niches like for instance when uh, up to a point in, in the history of uh, life on earth there were no terrestrial animals right uh or for that matter terrestrial plants but once that the, that some something has made that first uh, step literally in the case of animals uh then all sorts of possibilities got opened up uh, to exploiting lots of resources that were not available 
there, uh, not available earlier. So in that but, sense, but presumably, I mean, the, that transition to land also resulted in the transformation of the land itself. So they're constructing the niche for themselves right. and for other other species exactly. that are following, right? Exactly. So you can you can say that yeah, initially there were some opportunities that were not not exploited or potential opportunities that were not exploited. But as soon as something started exploding in them, then there is there is this process of of um, interaction with the environment with the environment and sort of reciprocal modification. Um, so niche construction in general now is referred to as, as these, these continuous feedback between the organism and the environment. Now, the classic examples of, of obvious niche construction are things like uh, beaver's dams, things like that, right? So where an organism goes out there and actively modifies its own environment uh, in a way that then has... Uh, consequences not only for its own lifestyle, but actually on the lifestyle of a bunch of other things. Because once a dam is being built in a, in a river, then all sorts of stuff gets affected, not just the beaver. Right? Not only that, but uh, niche construction in the modern sense of the term, in the, in the uh, sense that people tr tend to use within the extended evolutionary synthesis, uh, refers to a process of inheritance in some sense, meaning that Organisms don't inherit just their genes, obviously they do, but they inherit important components of their environment. Right? So uh, the, it's particularly the one that have, they have constructed. And so they don't start from scratch every generation. Uh, you know, uh, an organism leaves to its offspring a certain environment that that, that organism has modified in a certain way uh, that is likely to make that, that progeny more, uh, you know, capable of surviving, reproducing, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the idea, therefore, of modern supporters of niche construction, like uh, Kevin Lamond and Kim Sterelny and, and uh, John Oldrismi, people like that, is that uh, evolutionary theory should be expanded to include the concept of environmental inheritance, of the fact that, you know, Organisms don't start from scratch, just like genes. It's, it's, if you think about it, I mean, at least from my perspective, it's rather, it should be, it, it is, but should be a rather uncontroversial uh, concept mm -hmm. because just in the same way in which developmental biologists have discovered that you don't inherit just your genes from your parents, you inherit a lot of cytoplasm in the first, you know, uh, in, in the fertilized uh, zygote. Uh, without that cytoplasm, the genes don't do crap again. Because by themselves, they don't do anything, right? So you need that cytoplasm because you need nutrients, you need enzymes, you, need, you know, you need proteins, you need stuff that actually makes the metabolism work and reproduces, you know, that opens up the DNA, replicates it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Without that, you don't get an organism. Nothing, nothing gets started. You just have a bunch of DNA that stays there and does nothing, right? So in the same way in which we have what is called extra genetic inheritance, that old stuff is referred to as extra genetic inheritance. You also inherit your, you know, a um, uh, certain number of um, subcellular organelles like mitochondria, which, of course, they have their own DNA. But you, you inherit not just their DNA. You don't build, nobody builds mitochondria from scratch. You inherit the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. You inherit a certain number of mitochondria. If you're a plant, you also inherit chloroplasts. You don't start that from scratch either. Right. So, and if, in fact, if you did try to start everything from, from scratch, again, you would not have a viable organism. So just in the same way in which there is genetic inheritance and there is extra genetic developmental inheritance, the idea is simply to expand it even further, not just to the internal environment of an organism, but to the external environment. Organisms themselves don't start uh, from scratch in the external environment. They, they are born into an environment that is, the fancy term is, 
auto-correlated with the environment <laughs> of previous generations, right? Meaning mm-hmm. that your environment is similar to the ones that was was experienced by your grandparents mm. and your parents and things like that. Yeah, right. Um, and that is a good thing because if it were not correlated with the environment experienced by your ancest- immediate ancestors, then you would probably not be adapted to that environment. You, you, you find yourself in, sort of, uh, in, a, in, a, in a bad situation because now your genetic and developmental machinery are tailored for a particular environment. You find yourself in a completely different environment. It's like, ah, now what? Hmm. Uh, you're likely, more likely than not, you're going to die. Um, right. Yeah. So, so that's what I mean. Uh, niche construction. So, niche construction is different from niche from the inheritance from environmental inheritance, uh, but and that's actually a major difference between again the modern synthesis and the extended synthesis. In the modern, the modern synthesis does accept the concept of niche construction. It's definitely there. It's been documented by ecologists for decades, so it's not it's not controversial. What is controversial is whether we should consider the inheritance of, of information and materials from the environment as a separate channel of inheritance alongside the si- side of genetic inheritance and extra genetic inheritance or not. What difference yeah. does that make? So if I you know look back at the literature over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been quite a bit of pushback against this idea. So, so why do you think it continues to be controversial? Gene centrism. I mean, it's, it, I, I have no other <laughs> answer other than some people are just fixated with the damn genes. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> Which we've already established don't do crap by themselves. <laughs> That's right. That um, must be the title crap. of the podcast, by the way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> genes, genes don't, don't do crap. crap. <laughs> um, now, I mean, I don't understand. I mean, I honestly have a hard time uh, understanding this thing because um, all of this stuff is well known. It's not nobody. Nobody really says, oh, no, there is no such thing as extra genetic inheritance or there is no such thing as, as niche construction. It's all a question of, oh, but it's less important. Well, now we go back to the bricks and the, and the, and the line. What do you mean <laughs> it's less important? Mm-hmm. Uh, numerically, maybe, although I would like to see how you actually measure that. Because if you put it in terms of mass, certainly the genes are not very important. (laughs) They don't have a lot of mass. Um, So now, so people talk in terms of information, right? And they say, well, genes have care information. Uh, The rest of the stuff does not. But of course it does. There is information in the environment. There is information in the developmental systems of organisms. You don't, don't, and and, and, and the the, demonstration that that information not only is there but that's crucial is again that if you take it out you don't get a viable organism you just don't the genes by themselves are not capable of reproducing all that information in fact one of the things that's that really uh, bothers me is that uh, all these objections about extra genetic inheritance and developmental inheritance they all make it much more difficult for biologists to explain how natural selection could possibly do things because if you take all these other stuff out, right, then then it's up to the genes to do the whole work, the, the whole thing. But, and, and the genes, we know, simply do not have, cannot have stored that amount of information. Let me give you an example. Just think about the number of interconnections in your brain. Right? There's billions of neurons in your brain, and they're all interconnected to a bunch of other neurons. So that means billions and billions and billions of connections. If your genes had to specify the exact location of those interconnections in your in the adult human brain, your gene genome would have to be orders of magnitude larger than it is. This is a simple calculation. You can you, you can you can figure it out. Okay, it's not. We know this for a fact. So how does that work? Well, it works because 
throughout development, neurons make their interconnections by mechanisms that don't are not directly the result of genetic information. They just sense each other, you know, the, the proximity of other of other uh, neurons. They they arrange themselves in certain ways, and so the brain gets built. Um, in part, certainly under genetic direction, because if, there were, if, you, if you don't have the, pro, the right proteins in the right place and the right mo moment, nothing so, happens. So, so you might say that the genes are encoding the rules for how the neurons hook themselves up at some level. Correct. So. That's right. That's right. The genes are encoding the general rule. So uh, I myself have worked on a number of niche constructing organisms, mostly insects that uh, make leaf rolls or, or you know, tent caterpillars that construct these elaborate tents that m modify sometimes in pretty profound ways the thermal environment that the, the right. caterpillars are experiencing. Um, but I don't want to talk about those. I want to talk about humans as niche constructors and um, just get your ideas about um, how important is niche construction in our own ecology and evolution and, and culture. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, obviously I'm, I'm here inside of a you know, an air conditioned niche in Montana and I'm perfectly warm over the, over the winter and reasonably cool over the summer. I'm not experiencing that outdoor and I'm, I'm, you know, in the sense have transformed my niche, yeah. but it's not something that my genome built. It's not something that, you know, so there's, there's some complicated issues there and I'd like to know what Absolutely. you think about that. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, so there's a lot of research that has been done currently as we speak on, on that aspect. So applying, uh, the concept of niche construction to cultural evolution in humans. And you could argue that the whole of recent evolution in humans, or meaning the last at least 20,000 years, but probably more, has been a question of niche construction, uh, right? That, that um, and we, we, the, the interesting thing in that respect is that although people have tried and they're, and they're trying, we don't really have a good theory of cultural evolution. Uh, you know, people talk about cultural evolution in sort of metaphorical terms, like, oh, yeah, cultures evolve, meaning that they change over time. Um, and there's been occasionally an, uh, a sort of attempt to put together a more fundamental theory, like the uh, brief period where people were talking about memes uh, as analogous, as directly analogous to genes. But, but as far as I can tell, memetics has gone nowhere mm -hmm. except mm -hmm. as a metaphor, right? Um, so... So there are people who are trying to figure out exactly how does cultural evolution work and how, in fact, cultural evolution is uh, superimposed to and interacting with biological evolution. Because a lot of people, uh, so let me open a small parenthesis, lots of people think that, oh, because we have culture, then, then human beings have stopped evolving biologically. Not at all. <laughs> uh, not, not even a chance. Uh, it's, you know, we can measure act actually natural selection in human beings in a bunch of different traits. Uh, the most obvious one, this has been known for decades, uh, is th that there is very strong stabil stabilizing selection for weight at birth, mm. right? So meaning that, that natural selection acts so that the weight of babies at birth is within a certain range. If they're too large, they're going to kill the mother uh, and probably therefore also kill themselves. And, and uh, if they're too small, they're not going to be able to survive. Now, and, and you can measure that. You can actually quantify the intensity of uh, um, stabilizing. It's called stabilizing selection because it tends to stabilize it around the mean, right? As opposed to pushing one way or the other, which would be directional selection. Um, now, it's also true, however, that, of course, technological inventions have now relaxed that natural selection, right? So if you have incubators and you can get uh, babies, uh, viable babies, out you know, earlier on when they're smaller and put them in an incubator. Now that relaxes, that counters natural selection 
for you know stabilizing suction for beta, uh, weight of birth. But even that can be done only within certain limits. You can't just take at the moment at the least. You can't just take a zygote and put it take it out of the mother and put and grow it on its own. We can't do that at the moment. So. So there is constant interaction between biological evolution and cultural evolution. But you can argue that we have changed much more culturally than biologically uh, over the last, you know, 200,000 years. There is the doesn't the fossil record tells us there is no difference in cranial capacity, which, of course, is only a rough measure of brain ability and all that. But still, in terms of cranial capacity and probably of, uh, of brain anatomy, there has been no difference between the the three of us now and some men in the place to see. This might be a little bit challenging, but I guess um, we we did want to try to wrap up with the potential interface between these two big ideas that we talked about. Is it is it too late in the day or, or no, <laughs> too we can difficult try to wrap one's head around the, the, the relationship between niche yeah, construction can, and plasticity? Sure, we can try that and then we'll leave the other ideas for, for another episode. For um, another try, yeah. <laughs> uh, so... In, in some sense, they are directly connected um, because niche construction is made possible in part, at least, by the fact that there is behavioral plasticity in the, in, in the organism, right? So, so, so uh, again, to go back to the classic example of the, of the beavers' dams, uh, beavers, you know, probably have a, certainly have an instinct on how to do that kind of stuff, but they also uh, react uh, to their environment, to their immediate environment, to the materials that they find uh, in them, uh, around them, which may not be the same every time. They may not, and certainly they're not encoded genetically. Uh, so they show uh, behavioral plasticity. Human beings obviously have a huge amount of behavioral plasticity. I mean, we, can, I mean, we can adapt behaviorally to all sorts of things, of situations. Um, and behavioral plasticity is a type, is one particular type of plasticity, right? So it's, it's different from developmental plasticity, but it is certainly an important type of plasticity. In fact, argument, the argument has been made that um, uh, if anything, that, uh, if, if um, plasticity affects uh, the rate of evolution of species, that is particularly the case when we're talking about species that are behaviorally plastic. Mm. Uh, and that's not just human beings, that's, that's any large brain mammal, uh, so including other primates, for instance, uh, especially social primates, including the dolphins and other cetaceans that I was talking about earlier, and, and, and possibly also including birds, for instance. So, so there's lots of behavioral plasticity that is found in the animal world, especially among the smartest animals, the animals that, mm-hmm. that react more in a more flexible fashion uh, to environmental challenges. And so from there, the connection with niche construction becomes pretty obvious because if you're behaviorally plastic, then you can invent new ways of altering your environment and of, of, of receiving information and using information about your environment from one generation to, to the next. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, I appreciate it. It was, um, it was fantastic. Uh, yeah, I definitely learned a lot. Right. And, uh, pleasure talking yeah, to you. It was, it was really good. It was a pleasure. Okay. Thank you, guys. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thank All you. Right. Special thanks to Matt Blois for editing and production help. Thanks also to Gerard Sepes, Roman Boisseau, Devin O'Brien, Steve Lane, Victoria Doloff, Haley Hansen, Holly Kilvitis, Travis Flock, Meredith Kernbach, Chloe Ramsey, Jeff Oberding, Lars Schoenle, Cynthia Downs, and Suzanne Miller.